Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 137. If you want to hear a story about how you can accomplish a lot of the things that you want to from hitting the vision that you want with your business, checking all the boxes from the financial perspective for sure, finding a strategic buyer that understands your culture, your people, values them, and wants you to continue to infuse the business with your personality, your morals, and your vision, and is able to give you a checkbook and additional resources to continue to grow it, then you have to listen to this episode. Jill Nelson, who started Ruby Receptionist, is on the show today. She describes her whole journey from starting the company, bootstrapping it, all the way till when she hits her million dollar mark and then puts her BHAG in to say, we want to hit $10 million in 10 years. But not only does she hit the $10 million mark, but when she gets to the $11 million mark, she starts talking to buyers and she ends up doing a private equity recapitalization for $38 million. And the big question you should be asking is, why does a service-based business that does phone answering services get a multiple that is that extraordinary? Well, Jill had a very, very specific intention to build a platform using technology and then also huge amounts of value placed in the culture and the people that she has in her business to increase the value of her company because culture technology plus the need that she was solving, she just literally kills it. And when you listen to how happy she was, I just think it's a model that everybody needs to really pay attention to because even though it was a third-party sale, she had walkaway ability. She did all the right things from the value-building perspective. She had a great culture, and she was able to find the right buyer that valued her, her culture, and her vision and was able to continue on after the wholesale. And she's still working there years later, and they are absolutely killing it. Go onto the show notes or on our website and take the – 25 multiple choice questionnaire that actually will rate you in the five growth and exit planning principles and spit out a bunch of resources that you can start diving into to make sure that you are ready to maximize the value of your company and set yourself up to have the most amount of exit options to specifically get what you want, which is exactly what Jill did. I really hope you enjoy this episode with Jill. She does an amazing job explaining how she did it all. So without further ado, here's Jill Nelson. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your timeframe to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Jill, how are you? I'm doing well, Ryan. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm super excited. Like you and I were just chatting. So you were on John Warlow's podcast and that's how I I came across your story there. And I think actually I saw your name on the Small Giants community too, if I was not mistaken. That's right. And so Bo Bo Burlingham have been on my show and so uh, Paul Spiegelman and I love that community. And actually we got some that I don't know if you would have known Dan Golden from Be Found Online from Chicago. So I don't. But lots I of good community. So, yeah. Lots of good community people. And and so you get a pretty cool story. And you know, I think 
what I'd like to do is let's go back, you know, for the listeners at how did you become an entrepreneur? And as just mm-hmm. some of the questions I sent over, I wrote accidentally in parentheses because I'd say 90% of the, uh, the interviews that I do, I'm like, wow, I never really intended to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. Give us a little bit of yeah. backdrop and how you jumped in and what the business was. Yeah. And I mean, I could go way, 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 way back to um, even college, but I actually don't think I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I think I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And my dad was a civil engineer and he did not want me to study business because he felt like business people just move paper around and to be an engineer or computer scientist is building something of value. And my mom didn't want me to be a business major because she thought I was too creative and she wanted me to use my creative talents. And for some reason, I just was just sure that I wanted to be a business major. And so I feel like majoring in accounting, I always say it was an active childhood rebellion. Um, but I think I, that's kind of how, how it ended up. But, you know, as I, and I actually didn't start Ruby Receptionist until I was 37, but I was always curating. And, and now today I look at it and I'm like, that's what being an entrepreneur is. It's about using your creativity to create something of value um, with a little business thrown in. And um, I worked as a receptionist for a business broker. And as the receptionist for the business broker, I got to see like hundreds of small businesses tax returns. I got to see what businesses sold and what the brokers got excited about selling. And I unfortunately got to also see businesses fail and people who had invested their life retirement into something they were passionate about find out that there was no market for it. So it was a, re- you know, and the whole time I was sort of paying attention going, when I have a business, it's going to be this and this and this. And mm-hmm. so, the original idea, I wanted to do an executive suite. The, mo- the modern day equivalent is the co-working space, mm-hmm. the, the um, WeWorks of the world. And I wanted to do it in the Pearl District in Portland, Oregon that um, was up and coming at the time. And But I had no money and I had no experience, so I couldn't find a landlord willing to build out office space. So, um, so what I wanted to do space. was executive suites and um, rent out small offices to small businesses and provide shared receptionists and shared secretarial at the time. Uh, But I had no money and I had no business experience. So I couldn't find a landlord willing to build out class A office uh, uh, space at their expense. So I kind of noodled on, well, what can I do with the resources I had, which was, I think it was $17,000 in a uh, 401k that I had saved up and I got, I just took out the real estate and went, okay, well, if I want to help small businesses. If I want to really be their receptionist, how can I get the calls to them during the middle of the day, even if they're not sitting right next to me and just kept noodling on that until I found a telephone company and a software vendor that would kind of help me hodgepodge a solution together and got an Super SBA cool. loan and we were off and running. Super cool. And to go back even a little bit is like, it's funny because when I do my keynotes and I actually, I just did one like a couple weeks ago and they're like, what's the biggest thing? That, what's the first thing that any of us as entrepreneurs should do? And you know what I say is I say, go to a business broker's website and look at everything. So oh, you yeah. got some crazy, yeah. interesting exposure to like what, this, what actually value is where a lot of people mm-hmm. go 30 years and they're like, oh crap, this is not mm-hmm. worth much. Mm-hmm. 
So, so when you, how did, how did that, how did that insight impact what business that, you know, that you saw not, they saw the need, how did that, the value creation, what this is all tie into? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was ironic because back then this was literally, you know, 2000 and 2000 when I was um, working for the business broker and the big popular businesses that everyone got excited about was manufacturing. And they felt like service businesses had no, no value because your talent walks out the door every day. Your service mm-hmm. walks out the door every day. And I kept like, I just was like, yeah, but service revenue is recurring and machine, you know, like manufacturing requires capital expenditures and all these legacy business brokers. I was just like, no, no, no. If I ever start a business, I want a recurring Stuff. revenue stream. <laughs> And, and then I ended up becoming a business broker for a short period of time. Oh, really? and, it's, and right around then, it was like, and it was ISPs. It was these dial-up, I'm totally dating myself, but the no. dial-up ISPs, there's all these local providers and there was a lot of roll-ups going along. So I represented the sale of small business, no, all those small ISPs to- Bunch of PBXs, right? Them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and there's huge insights there because I then I got to see, and that recurring revenue piece, those ISPs were trading on multiples of revenue and then traditional business brokers are very modest, like two to three X EBITDA or income. And then the other big lesson I learned from being a business broker and being doing the roll up ISPs is that I saw, I sold two on the surface equivalent businesses. They had a similar level of revenue. They had similar number of subscribers and they had a similar price point. And one was wildly profitable and one was going out of business. And I kept, you know, I would ask the person who was wildly profitable and he just had every single solitary metric, you know, levered and measured and visible. And he knew every last one of them. And I mean, it was really the difference on execution um, about running a profitable business versus, you know, every every month being sort of month to month. So how did you find your first customer? So what was the, like the first year like? I mean, how did you how did you take that seventeen grand and what was the SBA loan for? And kind of what was the what was yeah. your vision of it? Yeah. So um, my view was I needed a phone system and software and employees to even before we had customer number one. So I had to get space. I had to get everything because if we were going to be a receptionist service, we had to be open from five a.m., which is where our you know East Coast customers would come from all the way into the evening, and so I like all of it was pretty much out the door. Personal guarantees on the on the space and the and the SBA loan and the phone contract. Um, I signed my life away before we even had customer number one, and we did not get customer number one until I think we launched June third to be live and to our advertisement. We did not get that first customer until the end of June. And I remember him asking, I actually remember him asking, how many customers do you have? And I remember saying, now we're one. working towards, we're, was like, we're working towards 20. Is what I said, <laughs> um, because I didn't want to lie. But, and I think years, I think he's still with us and, and uh, as a software engineer in New York City. And we finally told him that he was our first customer. And, <laughs> That's awesome. um, yeah, that was, it was a lot of uh, gut wrenching times because again, we were paying people to ensure that we were there to answer phones from morning to night. And when we only had 
a customer, like then 20 customers and they, you know, each of them maybe got 10 phone calls a day. It was, it took a long time to to get. <laughs> it know, went to the over, overnight, now. the 15 year overnight success, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so, Joe, what, what are some of the milestones that you were kind of, you know, hitting along the ways from yeah. revenue as like as the business model was yeah. changing? I'm curious, you know, even as you go into that, you know, the difference I think about even what you said and the insights and experience that you had versus a lot of entrepreneurs is you had this whole end in, did you have an end in mind? Was it like an opportunity that you were just trying to capitalize on or like what was the foresight and then what were the kind of the pivots along the way? Like I, I, again, I do think that I'm like an entrepreneur because I love the puzzle and I love the idea proving it. And so literally I was just looking for something to do that would get me excited to get up in the morning. And I just had this idea and actually people go, Oh, did you ever manage you would be successful? Or, Oh, did you ever imagine you would fail? Or, you know, were you afraid? And I'm like, I actually don't think either one of those things happened, you know, until we almost failed. Um, I just had this idea and I was just excited to see if small businesses wanted it, if it was going to be valuable. I just wanted to puzzle through it and get it out there and see what happened. So no, I did not have an exit in mind. And, oh, and you know, that is, that's, that's an interesting thing because on the one hand, I think it's important to know like, well, how, what is your, you know, what is your exit strategy? But on the other hand, I think it was just urgently required that to get that business up and running, I had to have that passion for the business itself. And if I just skipped over all that hard work and only thought about, you know, the exit, I would have never made it to this the other side here. Agreed. Uh, you have to, cause you have to enjoy, you have to enjoy it when you're getting yeah. socked in the face every day. I know. Yeah. So what were the, you know, what were, what was the business model then? Where was it, um, kind of give us the, 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 the milestones over the years were at, you know, some of the crucial ones that you probably, you know, yeah. you know, basked in the sun and was like, okay, I'm doing it. But it was it, you know, for the revenue employees and the, the model that you were, that you were working with and, um, actually with the customers. Yeah. And we are a metrics driven business and, uh, we are a, you know, we're this competing forces because, we are about personal connections and winning our small business customers new business by creating this really wonderful experience. But you don't answer 50,000 phone calls a day and not measure everything. There's also the, the, the least hidden secret around is I'm a pretty competitive person. <laughs> and so we, we are Oregon's record holder for consecutive years on um, Oregon's fastest growing companies. Uh, private 100 list. And the first milestone was making what they call Lighthouse Award, which is to make it five consecutive years. And that was a really big deal. Um, but around year five in business, um, I'd been introduced to Rockefeller Habits, Gazelles, Green Harnish. I don't know if any fans of that out there. And we created a strategic, yay, or scaling up. Yeah. That's great. Um, so we made this plan that at year five, we were a $1 million revenue company. And we were really excited to have that $1 million year. And But we did this exercise like, what would happen if we 
you know, what would it be like at 10 million of revenue? And we were, we did this vision exercise that I think is a Cameron Herald uh, painted picture exercise. And we like, how many employees? What would our office look like? And, and we just visioned it all out. And then we said, well, you know, what would that take to get there? And we worked backwards of, well, it would be this many customers. And well, what would, you know, and then we're like, well, what do we have to do this year in order to be on track? And we're like, that looks doable. So we set at year five, we set this like flag in the, in the sand of this 10 at 10. In year 10 of business, we we're going to do $10 million of revenue. And we literally set at five years, you know, at year five when we were a $1 million company and we just plugged at it. And by the way, the 10 year, 10 year was 2013. So this was during the 2008, 2009, you know, economy going the other direction. And I'm excited to report that 2013 was our 10 at 10 year and we exceed, we did something like 11 million in revenue. Oh so that gosh. was a huge, huge, huge milestone. And then, so of course we, of course, then we were like, okay, so now what? year 15 <laughs> of business. Yeah. So, so it became 50 at 15. We're like, gosh, if we can do 10x and five, like this is just easy. It's 5x. It proved to be a little bit more challenging, but we did cross. The, we did cross, and that was last year. And we actually crossed it with a fifty million dollar run rate, just shy, just wow. shy of annual revenues of fifty. Um, so good for you. Uh, guys. Those those are big. Like having those big milestones. It's and you know I'm a huge fan of breaking it into little tiny pieces that mm -hmm. seem manageable, and you know recalibrating. What do you think some of your biggest keys to success were out of that? You know, after when you when you really hit the hit the throttle, I mean, I mean, people yeah. processes was it capital was it like they you know innovations? What was some of the big things? Uh, so I do I do think having an eye on like we're we are just completely levered, and we are uh, even at a very young age in the company when we were small, we used you know Excel spreadsheets and Microsoft SharePoint to create KPI dashboards. And um, having measurable goals and knowing what success looked like, trying to not like that that fine line between what's what's doable and achievable and a real win and not killing ourselves in the process and having fun, that would be really early early on um, success. Um, but really, all the way through year ten, almost all of, we had pay per click, a modest amount of pay per click, and then it was referral customers. So it was really just executing and delivering a service that had real measurable ROI for our customers. I mean, that it's just absolutely at the foundation. Um, on top of that, we are we are literally it is a customer. We are selling customer service, so it's about like. Every single employee in the companies is empowered absolutely to do whatever they want to or feel like they should do for a customer um, from the receptionist to our customer happiness team. Just understanding that our customers are our success. And I think that's a huge, 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 huge focus. And that core belief of our, you know, where our mission is about the personal connection, but that core belief that people want to do business with people and just living and breathing that every day. Um, we've won a, a number of great workplace awards along the way with our fastest growing. So, you know, those, those values and the mission that define our service also what create a culture of, you know, 
net what is now 600 employees all rowing in the same direction. All W2? Um, yeah. <laughs> all W2, all full time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I know. <laughs> that's ridiculous. So in that, you know, with delivering, so there's a couple of things that I want to peel apart. And um, yeah. you had mentioned in John's podcast that I listened to about your culture and like, and mm-hmm. I can just tell me the way you just said that it's a huge deal. And I've got a couple of customers and people that are great friends who kind of, mm-hmm. I can tell by being part of the small giants that obviously makes a big difference. Right. But like yes. how that impacts your ability to hire, how that, how you maintain that and then how that was valued, you know, we can get that uh, down when we talk about the exit, but how did you scale with hiring the people like that? And then, yeah, I mean, that, that had to have been crazy difficult. Yeah. You know, and even today we're hiring, you know, a ton and we have 13 applicants for every receptionist opening, even in this economy, we have, we do eight interviews and like three face-to-face interviews for every one receptionist opening. So we, that is not a bottleneck for us, but we really recognize very early on. Well, you know, actually like as a, as a founder business owner, one of the great privileges is you get to run the business according to your own values. And, you know, I, I love, people and, you know, people connections. And I certainly want to come to work every day with people who want to be there, who, (laughs) um, who like are inspired to do the work, but you know, you learn those lessons that that's what creates success. And, but we also recognize on the, like on the turnover side, and we actually led the city of Portland back in 2015 with a $15 an hour starting wage, which was a $2 bump. That's awesome. It's a $2. Thank you. It was a $2 bump for our receptionist. But what ended up happening is the cost to provide service for a minute of service only went up two cents and it reduced our turnover by about 60%. And the thing about being a fast growing business is that when you are needing to hire for growth, if you're also hiring for turnover out the door, you can't, it's a bottleneck. You actually, it inhibits your growth. It, we, you know, you end up, mm-hmm. and we've had moments where we actually have a KPI uh, back in the day when we were growing so fast. The receptionist, 40% of our receptionists were in their first 90 days and it just created chaos. Um, our service levels dropped and we realized like we actually can't exceed 20% of our employees in their first 90 days. So anytime we exceeded that, we actually couldn't, we would have to unthrottle our uh, marketing. And so, so being able to, you know, have really low turnover was a key strategy, but more than that, like we're selling people, the personal connection. And so we have a set of values. We live it to our customers. We live it to our people. Finding 600 people that are happy and enjoy life like you, that must be crazy difficult. No. (laughs) All right. Here's my, here's my, my, uh, sort of challenge to people. I actually think hiring nice people that really are excited to be able to be nice to other people. I think that part's easy. I think we turn employees into when we create rules that make people nervous about doing the wrong thing or scared they're going to do the wrong job or not feel empowered, we actually turn them into unnice people that, that just literally are fear-based in their work. Um, so one of my controversial topics is it's easy to hire. It's hard to, uh, inspire, to make people feel safe, to let them, to make them feel empowered, to 
be just themselves, really. I think you're spot on with that, actually. I mean, that was as I went through the turnaround in our business and having to hire that many people, it was like, hey, eliminate the ego is like, you know, you just, it is easier to it because people want that. They, they don't want to be, I mean, they're, everybody's adults, right? No. They don't want to be micro. Yes. yes. Yep. No. As long as you put in the and you hold to it. The, you know, yeah. on, on the, on the inner structure of the, the business too is, what were the what was the engagement like? Because I know this this is going to tie into kind of your evaluation and the exit is like is how what was the contracts like with the business with your clients and then you ended up building out a system too, right? So it wasn't just a service based business. You had some proprietary technology and some other things inside of that, correct? That is correct. So you know we are a live virtual receptionist, and today it actually includes the telephony. And the mobile app that's connected to our receptionist software. So we're literally connected with our customers all day long. We're integrated into their contacts. We're integrated into their practice management software if they're attorneys. Um, but when we, and one of the tenets of our business, because we're the receptionist for small business, we answer every single solitary call live. And we, you know, now we have 10,000 small businesses and 400 and some you know, receptionist. And now we have also online chat as well. And so we couldn't do that. We had to get onto our own software. So the proprietary software, and that's where the differentiator between service, where all of the talent is in people's head. And if they walk out the door, you've lost your business versus the technology that basically we can onboard a receptionist in a couple of days and we can onboard a customer and without any training, like we can onboard a customer now in 15 minutes and whether it's the first or the 100th call, that business is going to get the same friendly experience with the know-how and the knowledge that's going to make us sound like we're right in the office. So the technology piece was a core part of why we were valued um, as a tech-enabled service company on multiples of revenue rather than um, a traditional service business. And today, the tech... Yes. Well, no, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, yeah, multiple revenue for a tech business is a little bit different than how uh, law firms, CPA firms are valued, right? I mean... That's right, yes. <laughs> So what, what, what was the triggering? Like how, like if you're having that much fun, you're growing that much and you're hitting your, your BHAGs to take the Rockefeller term, right? Yeah. Is, what, yeah. what is it that led you to explore other options? Well, and I, and I had reached a point too, where in the business, I was actually able, it was a beautiful, healthy business, great leadership team. I was actually taking a lot of time outside of the office and just enjoying that as a lifestyle business. And then this, investment banker came along and tried to, you know, I was this traditional business broker, as you recall, and we sold businesses at like literally like as low as one and a half times EBITDA to, you know, maybe five or six. And this guy comes along and tries to tell me, you know, that my business is worth multiples of revenue. And I, you know, I was like, well, I don't believe you, but if it's true, I'm interested because I'd already taken a step back. And, you know, it's like, you know, here I am still in the seat. I actually, you know, what ended up happening and, and that was the genesis. And then I was really paranoid because it's it's my baby and these are my people. And I certainly didn't need to do anything. So it was really, it was just this, you know, it was like, I'll do the exercise. We'll see what happens. But it was, it was one of those, like, I'm not just selling to anybody. And so let's walk through that. Because like, I think it's, you know, the, you know, this is, I think, a very interesting topic for my listeners because yes. there's a lot of, I'd say, the the small giants kind of listeners that are 
They, they care about the baby. They're really, they really care about the people. So it's not just, I mean, that's why, you know, with my whole situation, it was tough when you have to fire a bunch of employees. If it's, a, if it, it all depends on what the buyer wants from the business, right? right. So yeah. how did you, you know, aligning, getting the, the value for the business and aligning the values with the, mm-hmm. the buyer and all that stuff is complicated. Yeah. And then optimizing the tax, blah, 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 all this stuff, right? Yeah, so yeah. Can you right. walk us through the, like the, the, the journey, Jill, yeah. what is the exercise they did with that investment banker? And then did you go through the normal process and like, what, what was it like from mm-hmm. inception of, Hey, maybe to, okay, this is <laughs> a real situation. Absolutely. And I would say that, you know, I'll start with the outcome first, which is that I do think that, especially if you have a vision, you have a vision for the future of the company and the, the best valuation is the is the partner that looks at that and goes, yeah, I believe in that vision and what we have today is just scratching the surface. Um, and I believe in the leadership team, which is ironic. And it's a really core component of getting the highest value because it de-risks when a, an investor looks at your team and goes, yeah, this team can take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. And I and also on the culture piece, and this is why I kind of knew that these guys weren't just you know talking, and they really were going to walk the talk. Is they said, hey, you know, they invested almost exclusively in software companies, and they're like, we don't know your business. You build something special. We can help you continue to develop the technology vision that you have. That it's that it's basically all you need to do to run your business is Ruby and a cell phone. You know, that we're sort of like, even though we have W2 employees, it's very similar to like, you know, like you might think of an Instacart today where you're getting a personalized service exactly when and how you want it. That's mm-hmm. completely controlled by your mobile app. Um, mm-hmm. But then that, at that time, that was, that was a vision. And they're like, we can help you there. Just don't let us screw up your culture because that's literally what gives you the differentiated edge. And they felt like our culture wasn't just something that, you know, they were talking to. They felt like it was our competitive moat. And, and that's why nobody else could just come in and, and repeat what it is we're doing. So a follow-up question on that is the fact that you were taking time off, um, because I know like it not only was my old situation, but a lot of the people that I know is, they're, they might not be the technical. So like, let's say they've decoupled themselves from the technical know-how in the business, but they're uh-huh, still, uh-huh. Paul Spiegelman, I think he was, was the chief culture officer, happiness officer. Mm-hmm. So yeah. was that, who in your executive team was also able to do that? Did you have other people that were able to take what you've got in your DNA and actually ripple it throughout the business? So I, so this is, this ironic, possibly a bad strategy. Um, but I have long, like long, when we moved to two locations and three locations, and now we've, we've actually done an acquisition ourselves now, which I can, I can speak to. And it's always been what's going to happen to the culture. And I'm like, well, culture comes first because that's what creates the success. And we have what we call people-powered culture. So it is nobody on our executive team. It is the frontline people. And then we have our, rece- our receptionist centers are literally, they are separate from our headquarters and from the supervisor, we call them cultivators, but the entry-level supervisors all the way up to the site director, all former receptionists. So having receptionists in literally every rank, legacy receptionists, that's another thing where turnover is key because when you have these legacy 10-year employees, when 10 years ago, you only had, you know, 60 or 70 employees, 
and they are empowered to keep alive the culture and our, we just, we constantly call it a people powered culture and it's not a top down thing. And it's the only way that no, you know, matter if you're one center or 10 centers that the culture lives on. And so I actually have not necessarily to everybody's approval or desire, but I've actually kind of removed myself from the day to day so that eventually no matter what happens or whether, you know, whether we open a center on the East coast and I'm never there, it's not about me at all. Mm -hmm. And I think probably six years ago, it long stopped having anything to do with me. And it's just this really cool organic thing. That's super cool. That is sort of passed on to everybody as they, what are the you did to do that? You know, was it a couple key employees that then they hired like-minded people or was it like we, in our business, we call it the 212 program. It was like the one yeah. that it helps it boil. Like, I mean, I don't know if there's anything that specifically that you did to like maintain that, that um, DNA of the culture. Yeah. Well, I, the empowerment piece is key, but it, but I think like we, this, the three words I use, incent, inspire, empower. Those are the, like the three things. And, and one of the early lessons was we had our set of values. We said these things are important. Um, and yet when we were giving raises and, and incenting people, we were giving raises based on how productive you were and perhaps, you know, what your attendance was, which has nothing to do with our core values. And that got pointed out to us. So one of the first things is everything that you see that we measure aligns right back to the core values. We actually measure peer-to-peer recognition. We actually measure note cards and little one-minute videos that we send out to customers. Um, Super cool. So that's one of those things is aligning our values to what we are actually measuring Mm -hmm. things on. And that just, that's one of the things that people go, oh, that's what this company cares about. Oh, okay, I'll do that. And that, that lives on. And then from a cultural standpoint, when we talk about empowerment, one of the things like we have a a wow station and it is stocked with all kinds of things that come up in phone conversations like, Oh, it's so cold out. Or we send them a little, you know, cocoa and a mug or, Oh my <laughs> gosh, you know, I need another cup of coffee. We'll send them some Portland coffee. But behind that is also an Amazon prepaid account that everybody has access to that they can buy anything for any customer. And for any reason, they just have to share the story. And so all these programs that are really about, helping employees understand from day one that they are they are empowered to make the culture. We it, we have our beautiful spaces. They're open 24-7 to all employees. They start running teams and knitting clubs and literature clubs. And I, I, it goes, it will blow your mind, all the different things exactly. that our employees just on their own start. And then like one final thing that I love passing along to other businesses is that we have culture funds. So everybody also has a little bit of money to whatever that might be. It's a hundred dollars per year per employee and they might have an idea and it's obviously going to be more than a hundred dollars. And I'm like, I have this idea. It's like a, it's like a Kickstarter fund, like who, crowdsourcing. I need mm-hmm. people to donate their culture funds. And then the really great popular things that people actually want to participate in get funded and the dumb ideas that me sitting up here in the, you know, in the corner office that I have, you know, think that people like don't get friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, awesome. but this like people powered culture, like we say it is, but like there's Actually a lot it. that we, we put into place so that it just lives on. And then, and then, and then hiring 
talking to the core values, retaining, and we all know that also, you know, letting people go that just don't align with it. The culture is, is both a gift to them as well as, you know, a way to protect what, um, what we have. Um, so how did you, uh, let's go. Cause I think all that is, is very tangible for the listeners and how going back yes. to the investment banker and you saying, okay, well, multiple revenue, there's yes. lots of money yes. here, especially if you're doing 11 million, how, walk us through. So that's the outcome. That's difficult to find someone that values it, that allows you to keep that. That's not just financially and financially gets what you're doing. So Walk us through the process. Like, how did you go about finding these people, and what was that that experience like? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So, um, and just so you know, like, I am like I am that business major, and I have actually seen P and Ls of businesses that don't necessarily have these programs, but they're similar in what they do, and our margins are wildly uh, more positive. So, um, so at the end of the day, our income statement just looks looks good um and i am an advocate for the most profitable businesses are the ones where you don't have to hire and train all over again Uh, so back to the investors so we ended up hiring a different investment banker who who knew there's just there's so like private equity there's different funds for different stages with different interests and they I, i will tell you the due diligence of what i experienced as a business broker and what i went on this um, went through with this process, not even in the same ballpark at like, not even close. <laughs> what do you mean by uh, that? But they ended up, Oh my gosh, it was like, it was uh, a thousand times more intense. Um, <laughs> like our customer database back to the beginning of customer, like every invoice we ever sent out had to be validated, you know, inter- like I, it goes on and on and on, but our, our financial statements and customer records were validated. Um, I think it's an interesting note, honestly, is we, I, I, I pre, it's the worst thing that any owner wants to deal with when, why wouldn't Mm -hmm. you want to go talk about your wow fund instead versus like, you know, making sure your library is kind of cleaned up, but it's, it's, it's It's like everything you you think about since inception. That's right. Yeah. And er, like, like just one of the things out there, I had to, in order to close, locate my S corp filing, which is like some random piece of paper from 13 years ago. That that was like pretty touch and go. For example, that's like one example. But you know, at the end of the day, like it is about risk, right? So everything you have, everything you have buttoned up, that's just a little bit less risk, which means someone's just willing to pay a little bit more. And and so we ran a process. The process was. There was a little, you know, flyer teaser that went out to the most likely suspects. Um, some strategics, strategics moved much. They were just all too slow, essentially, at the time. Um, NDAs got signed. Books got sent out. We, I did 20-something uh, one-hour video calls like you did and got 20-some letters of interest, picked the top eight, had face-to-face meetings all day meetings with the team, pick the top to allow to bid. And yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, and then we picked our favorite and the investment banker was really, really, really helpful keeping on schedule. And, you know, as a business broker, one of the things that happened is once a seller would, would 
accept an offer, they kind of lost their their upper hand and they were kind of on the seller's or the buyer's timeline and kind of at their mercy and and it can it can create angst and end up killing deals. And the investment banker was really, really helpful just keeping the process going to close. Um, so what I think is interesting is, you know, like one of the things that based on my story is that like having that many options, you don't realize, cause so many, how many times Jill, have you heard someone, well, I was at a trade show and my strategic competitor is like, I should buy you or like a vendor mm-hmm. or, a, or a customer. Mm-hmm. And you just like, Oh, sure. Great number, huge number. Like, let's do this versus what you experience is 20 different offers or different, like, you know, the, like depending mm-hmm. on those, explain how all those were different from terms, conditions, pricing, and how those buyers yeah. had different plans for your business. Yeah. I mean, and, and some just saw it as a straight service business and, um, and they valued it as such. And so the, it was a really, really, really wide range. And, and the letters of letters of interest mm-hmm. were, they, they were a range and, and then, you know, and then there's this phase two, and then you have your final bid, uh, which was, again, different than the business, the way the business brokerage works. And here's everyone saw a little bit different. And the parties that were the most competitive were the ones that really bought into the vision for the future because they saw it and they saw that, you know, and that's where multiples of revenue comes in, um, that the tech pl- and the tech platform at the time was immature. And so there were some parties that were like, yeah, your tech platform's immature. So we're devaluing that versus some parties looked at that and goes, gosh, we can help you with that. That's the easy part. We know how to help you get your vision created, you know, where you've positioned yourself in the marketplace and the reputation you've had and the growth you've experienced and how efficiently you get customers we can add capital there and help you accelerate that way. But there's, there was a number of things that, that it was really more about what is the business going to look like in the future that the most competitive parties saw and bought into. And, you know, again, looking at risk, it was, it's those portfolio, those portfolios that have things in common with your business. So, for example, one of the things about our business is we serve very small businesses, which means the churn on a, cust- a small business customer is higher than an enterprise, like a big business with annual contracts. It's a smaller revenue. So there's a fear that at some point, even though there's you know tens of millions of small businesses, that it will be really hard to get customers efficiently. But there's other businesses, other portfolio companies where if they have another example of success, they go, oh, we know how to do that. We can help you here. We're not afraid of small business. We actually love small business because it's got this huge mm-hmm. market. And, you know, it's some of that. Um, so, well, and, and I find it's, it, it, you have just a couple of major points where if you look hard enough, you can find all the right characteristics. It's like dating. And so many people just mm-hmm. say yes to the right number. And is there anybody in that process that had a really appealing number, but you were like, no way, mm-hmm. like because of mm-hmm. what they were, mm-hmm. the comments they're making, mm-hmm. what they would do. Yes. With your yes. Yes. And it was just, I mean, it was just really easy, you know, I, you know, at the end of the day, most of the people that made it to the finish line, there was alignment there, you know, because you're not going to have the most competitive number if you don't actually buy what it is the, the leader is saying about the business. So <laughs> um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the, but there was definitely some that were like, no, 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 no. Get the, you get and, the, and then there the was, some, there was, 
There is some that I really, there is one in particular, I, I want no names, but I really, really, really like them a lot, but their methodology and the way that they, they just couldn't get there in the number. Um, um, so how about, day, I still like update a best. So. <laughs> no, it's so cool. And like, and you know, we can kind of, cause I know we're going to be short on time here in a little bit, but the, I, I'm curious on the deal structure. I don't know. is like, because when you're talking and I don't know if you're comfortable sharing numbers, I think that I've seen some of those out there is, you know, you're talking big numbers. So was there any creative things that, or that you wish you did or didn't do on the tax or the estate plan to structure it? So you make the most yeah. of the actual. Yeah. 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 I think it's a, you know, if, um, okay. So <laughs> you don't have to go into like IRS tax know, code, but, but it's okay. Lot. I think I, I geek I out. Did, on we did, we did pretty well. Um, we worked with the accountant and we got, we were, you know, from a tax perspective, we were able to do that. There's a, but there's a lot more than just the number, you know, how much, if you're rolling any, how much debt, if any, is anyone going to use, put in the business? I, I was, you know, I was really, really concerned. My concern was the future of Ruby and its employees. And, and that was, like so much more important than any sort of structure, any sort of like tax piece. And that was my most, you know, obviously there's Mm -hmm. the financial benefit, but at the end of the day, I, you know, this is again, my baby and the people who shed blood, sweat and tears to, to make it what it is that there was a future for them that, and, and where I got was, it felt like Ruby was in better hands with this partner than if we were to continue to go it alone. And then that made the decision easy. But from a minutia, I know now that there's a lot of things I could have negotiated. Which definitely tax structures and Anything you know, could like could like one thing I'm like, could I have, you know, I just rolled a little bit, but I stayed on as CEO. Could I have gotten more shares just vested just by staying in the CEO seat? Could I have could I have negotiated more board seats? Like these things that I just knew nothing about that mm-hmm. I didn't think were big deals. That, and I and my partnership with Updata has been just phenomenal. But you know, when I learn other people's stories and and hear the things that were important to them, it, it's it's pretty a good key. Start. And then from a, I was going to say, did you do an asset or a stock sale? It was a stock sale. We actually had to convert from a S corp to a C corp. Um, in the same day, and and there was a it was a pretty complicated transaction. Um, but uh, in ordinary order, income versus or capital we gains versus ordinary we, we income. Were, we were able to we were able to do it in a way that it was capital gains. But the but the hard part was I didn't want to. The part that would have been really challenging. Yeah, if any of it would have been personal, you know, ordinary income, that would have been like a like a completely different equation. Most people don't and even know that. Though. That's so that's so crazy. You're talking lots and lots and lots of zeros. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, oh, well, when I was a small time business worker, sort of the asset allocation piece that was like, if anything was going to like blow a deal up, it was going to be the asset allocation, or you know, whether it's a stock or asset sale, and um, but you know, at the, but let's see. Oh, I know. Preferred, what I rolled, I rolled common and the new owners took preferred stock. So that was a surprise to me and taking the time to understand that, what I was signing up for. And basically the idea was, hey, as long as the business grows at 8% in value every year, 
we have nothing to talk about. And I felt really confident that that would continue to happen. So, um, but those are things like that are surprises that you got to like, and that, and that's another reason why the investment banker can be super helpful because they can really help you understand and compare offers apples to apples. Huge, huge point there. And um, before I kind of get into the final piece of what it's like um, been working as a partner in yeah. people, was there anybody else on the team? You know, did you have an M&A CPA attorney or any of these people that, that were helping out on the side too that um, you saw that were mm-hmm. had some really good mm-hmm. pieces of advice that you'd want to share? Uh, or maybe, maybe uh, that's it. I'm, I'm trying pulling, to think that. No, no, no. Other than pulling like a needle out of a haystack, more just like how the, <laughs> I, I think the thing is, Jill, like the, the, the point of the, the question is that so many people don't have these people talking together and it's like your outcome that they're yeah. trying to actually solve for and versus having silos. Mm-hmm. And the reality is like, one situation ripples into all the other designations. And I just find it so many times it's difficult. A lot of people, they don't have a team that's actually talking behind the scenes. Yeah. And oh my gosh, we had a really big team. And it like the whole, that whole process, like it, it was just, it was so expensive. <laughs> I think that was a, a big shock. Um, but, you know, we had to, we had to engage, we had to um, engage our accountants to enable their accounts to do due diligence. We had to have a IT consulting firm validate the security of our technology. You know, you don't get into those big numbers without ensuring someone knows exactly what they're getting. And you, at the end of the day, you just have to engage professionals to be able to do that. Um, And it's fair. I mean, who wants to write a seven figure check with not knowing what they're getting? (laughs) No, no kidding. But, you know, and I, if you're comfortable sharing the numbers, I think what you what you yeah. sold your tranche for, um, and then because you know, the whole point is that these numbers pay for themselves, right? Out of what they protect you for, and then like from the risk from the buyer, and then also for you, because wasn't it around 30 plus million bucks or 30? Was, I don't remember exactly what the numbers were for your for your value of the, the company, the, the, the part of the company you sold. That's the value of the part of the company yep. we sold. Yes, it was, a, it was like a $38 million transaction for the majority of okay. Ruby. And then a couple of like myself and there was one other tiny shareholder that we rolled them. So what so, is it like being, and we, you yeah. know, when you have a check like that, that comes and he hits the yeah. bank, you know, being an employee yeah. of someone else, what has that been yeah. like? You've got the ability to walk out, but you're also still here. Yeah. Three, four, five. How long has it been? I know, I know. It's been like, and that I, I think that's the biggest surprise. Like, um, I, I will say, my attorney said, Jill, I just want you to know, I have never, when we go back around the second time, I've never seen that CEO in the same seat. You know, like three years later. So I just want you to be warned. And I really like. I, I guess that's the piece of advice. And I was like, I, I'm totally okay with that. Obviously, because I was, it was really about how Ruby was left. It was, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not if I was, as I was like, as long as I can be helpful, as long as I'm the right person for the job, great. And what ended up happening was, oh my gosh, I could fill up a whole another hour about all the things I learned after doing the deal with them. And like just a million things. And, it, and I think the job has changed every single year. It's a new company. And I think that's what kept me here. Um, you know, now I will say, you know, it's 600 people. And so the job of scrappy entrepreneur where things get done like that is like, you know, it's a little bit like it tests my natural inclinations of idea, idea, idea. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, Um, wait, meetings and approvals (laughs) and 
So is, is it, uh, yeah. you know, I think Jill, I'm curious. And like, I don't know if I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, the, you know, when you say your baby and that's so many people talk about that, right? And yes, like Bo, Bo, yes. Bo's book, Finish Big talks a lot about that. And it's like, do you think that there's a level of how you've been treated with these people and having them appreciate what you've built versus just looking at it and just, you know, I, I, I don't know. There's just a level of appreciation and, you know, being valued that I think is huge at a lot of people. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it is. It is like, I mean, I think I am not really driven by money. I'm not. It's more like creativity and getting an idea and a place and being able to build something that other people really find valuable. And what, you know, what I will, another surprising thing, especially with private equity is I think they really mean it when they say we invest in teams and they didn't keep me on as CEO, as a founder CEO, so that they could just tell me what to do. If they wanted to just tell somebody what to do, they would hire a hired gun CEO. They totally depend on the CEO to set the strategy, to find the vision, and to guide and provide help where, where needed. And that's really... And I, and I think actually, and I don't think every firm is that way. I think some have a clear statement like, nope, this is where we would take your company. This mm-hmm. is how we see it. And that, that's another way to go too. Um, but a lot of private equity firms are like, we got to buy into the leader and where, right. where they're going. So I know we're, we're short, short on time here. So, you know, if there's something that, because you said that you learned, I mean, you've gone through so much. If there's something that we, we've talked about that you want to re-highlight or if they're or re, re, um, uh, bring to the surface or if there's something yeah. that we haven't covered that you're just like, you know, here's the listeners. This is a huge takeaway. I don't know if there's something you want to leave. Yeah. Um, I do, you know, metrics and having precision and knowing your business and knowing your numbers, it both creates a successful business, but it also creates enterprise value because it de-risks from an investor's standpoint where they feel like they know what they're getting. It's really a huge deal. Um, I think that's number one. And the other thing is like, when you are going to sell your baby, it's not just about money. It's just not. And thinking about what would it take for you to get a transaction and solve for that? When you know what you're trying to get, then I think it's easier to go seek and find it. Um, um, one follow-up question on that is, yes. <laughs> did it take you the process to figure out what you wanted out of it from that? Or did, it, did you have a way that you articulated it before that? I, I would say... When I started going into the process, I was a little bit, in fact, I was dramatically uh, more removed from the day-to-day business. And I kind of fell back in love with the business as I started talking about it and painting, you know, like, what could it be in five years? And so kind of rediscovered this whole new business <laughs> plan and idea, and then like had the help and backing um, to go do it. I just completely, that was probably of everything, the biggest surprise. I just became right back at the starting point, excited to go. That's super again. cool. So if the listeners want to follow you, get in touch with you, what's the uh, yes, best way to yes. reach out to you? So I, our website, callruby.com. Um, I have a, I think Jill Nelson PDX is a Twitter. I don't post very often, but I, um, I'll, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm um, Jill Nelson, founder and CEO of Ruby Receptionist. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jill. I had a blast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a blast too. Listen. Well, 
Jill killed it, didn't she? I hope you had a lot of takeaways. You know, some of the ones that I had, I'm just going to layer them into the five growth and exit planning principles because I think that Jill just did all of it right. One, for the first principle of vision, she knew what she wanted. She knew what was important to her and she knew why. Absolutely important. Like she said, you have to understand that so that way you can go get it. She knew that her employees were important to her. Her vision was important to her. She just really had all of that locked and loaded so that way she could calibrate all the different things that were coming at her under the lens of what she wanted and what was going to make her happy. The second principle with the financial targets. Well, because she <laughs> built a valuable business and she was making a lot of money for a lot of people, she was able to, no matter what, crush it. And because she was not unbelievably greedy and not super, super only focused on the money, she was able then to layer in all the different potential buyers in the lens of, okay, she's going to give a degree here and there, but it's way more important to figure out the right fit, which leads us to the third principle of the exit options. She chose a private equity recapitalization, but you could tell that she did the research of finding the investment banker that was doing the due diligence to find a variety of strategic buyers and private equity financial buyers. And because she knew what she wanted and why, she was able to select these people from why they wanted Ruby receptionists instead of just, okay, I'm going to get the money. So her exit option was layered on top of the last two principles. The fourth principle, she was able to build out a technology platform and systems and processes inside of a service business that was able to get her $38 million on a recap on $11 million in revenue. So Jill looked at her industry completely different than everybody else, and she wanted to build a platform into the systems so that way she could make something repeatable. And the fact that she was able to say that the amazing, bubbly, selfless, customer-facing, amazing culture that she built wasn't reliant on her is absolutely extraordinary. What she did is nothing short of amazing. The fifth principle, she was able to do the due diligence on the investment banker who she didn't even hire. And she ended up finding the right people that were finding the ways to accomplish all of the things that she wanted in order to do the maximization. She even said that she spent a lot of money on advisors, but she got what she wanted and she was able to maximize the plan because she was driving the plan because she knew what she wanted. I really hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to know where you stand in those five different principles, go onto the show notes, go onto the website, take the growth and exit planning quiz, the survey, and figure out where you're at in all these. It's just a multiple choice, no financials, just to give you an idea of where you sit and to start racking your brain. And then we'll shoot you a bunch of resources to keep diving into where you think you need to go into. So with that being said, I will see you next week.